Hello? Can you hear me now? i just been chatting. Okay. <laughs> well, now i got like 30 seconds to edit out of the front of my podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. I My mic was on. It wasn't plugged all the way in. And Julie can, has a mic similar, has this exact mic. And um, she can attest that it could be a pain in the ass on that front. Okay. So what I was saying was, is tonight we're trying a new format. It's like a new, like sort of like our writer's table. We're going to do um, this two-question format show. Um, and if you want your question, if you would like to answer, ask a question to appear on a show like this in the future, please go over to the website and click on the Ask Me Anything page and ask your question. Because that's where I'll be calling questions from for this in the future. And I try to match, I'll be trying to match questions up so, you know, for, for similar themes as we go through. Um, and I got Jilly on the line and um, she helped pick out the questions for this evening. And um, um, I... I want to brag. Uh, I finished my quantum bang yesterday. It's so exciting. <laughs> well, I finished the rough draft of my quantum bang. Let's put it that way. I've got quite a few months of um, second draft and beta ahead of me. So, because it's 110K, 113K, 113. I put it on my Facebook. <laughs> I made a banner for myself on my Facebook. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's 115k basically, and um, so yeah, I'll be I'll be editing for quite a while. <laughs> That's interesting. What? Oh, sorry, I thought I was muted. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, my my roomie's I'm out, out grocery shopping. And when she oh. comes back, um, it's going to get noisy with the groceries, right? So I was I, moving my, you know, computer mid-podcast. It was very difficult. Um, so I was like, can I get can – well, does Chatwing work on my tablet? And so I was just checking it, and it does, because moving my tablet and my phone is minimal effort. You know, I just move into another room. But it, it's a little hard to type on the – so I was just preparing for later. <laughs> But congratulations on 15. That's, I mean, on finishing, that is, that is amazing. And that rough draft done is. Well, my goal was to finish before November. So I actually wanted to finish before October, but I'm pretty thrilled to finish now because I can concentrate on nano and um, it's just relieved a lot of stress and it's my first bang. I'm having a hard time not talking about it. (laughs) It's 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 amazing too. It's amazing. So oh, thank you. Not that, I'm, not that I'm trying to you know tease people the fact that I've read it, but I have read it. There you go. <laughs> uh, but people already knew I'd read it, so. Um, well, it is it is different than I normally write, and um, uh, it's more. I went deep with the characters. Mhm. I went deep with the psychology and. Um, so it's a little different. But I'm I'm really, really happy with it. And I made myself cry. Ugly cry, no less. Yeah. 
I yeah, was all Kathleen. Cry. I actually cried into that month. shit. <laughs> yeah. But it is a happily ever after. There, there is a happy after. I mean, I don't believe in bad endings. I think it ends on a beautiful note. Um, and I thought I accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish for my characters. And I'm 22 plots into the, I'm 22 plot points into a sequel. <laughs> it's a lovely verse. So universe. So you know, I, I'm not sad to, to hear that you're working, you're plotting the sequel. Um, I've plotted the sequel, um, and I'm thinking it's going to be probably 15 years into the future. There's going to be a time skip. Oh, okay. Okay. So that well, will make I, it matched hmm. up with um, some canon events that taking place around around that time. So. Hmm. Yeah, it wouldn't adjust. I'm not going to say anything else because I'll say something. I'll say something that I shouldn't. Well, I need to go that far in advance for the age of one character um, for it to make. It just has to be there. <laughs> I need to hush. You know, like was gatekeeping me. <laughs> yeah, hush now. I give it away. Um, <laughs> I have a random real life rant just to throw in, just a random bitch. Okay. I hate okay. buying a new cookbook that's supposed to be for, you know, super easy recipes, like one pot cooking kind of thing. And like just first recipe I look at has a whole fuck ton of ingredients that like nobody has in their kitchen. Mm. It's like really this is this is my easy cookbook is a bunch of shit that I barely even heard of. Like there's one thing on here I hadn't even ever heard of before. I was like, What? You know who I highly recommend? The Domestic Geek. The Domestic Geek. She's on YouTube, and she does um, recipes and stuff. Like, she has recipes, like, uh, three-ingredient soups and five-ingredient soups. And she'll do, like, five soups that way. Um, But I highly recommend the the Domestic Geek. Uh, I think she has a website. I believe she has an e-book or two. Um, but I actually have a video queued up to watch after the podcast because it's her new video. It's called Three Easy Stew Recipes, and she's doing a beef, a chicken, and a vegan mushroom. Um, but I highly recommend The Domestic Geek. She does all kinds of meal prep, and she does, um, just all kinds of really cool stuff with, um, with, Different, you know, different ingredients, but she does staple ingredients. And if you don't have one thing, she'll offer a substitution. Like it's like if you, if you don't want to use quinoa, you can use rice here, or <laughs> you know what I mean. So I highly recommend her. If you go if you go to YouTube and do it in a search box, the, the domestic geek. She's a cute little blonde. Um, so that's a bonus too because she's fucking adorable. Uh, but she's um she I just like her show a lot and I get a lot of ideas and she's not someone who gets all um ridiculous with the ingredients. And another one is Mind Over Munch, who partners with domestic geeks sometimes, also does some really good simple recipes. She's more of a whole foods um kind of cook but 
they're both really good. I highly recommend them. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm specifically looking for true one-pot cooking because I like just mm-hmm. throwing everything in a pot so that, you know, either start the pressure cooker or the slow cooker and forget about it. And most one-pot cookbooks are not actually one pot. It's like you start in seven pots and then you finish it in one pot. In one pot. Which I find, bullshit. which is fucking irritating. That is that is not one-pot cooking. That is still creating a giant disaster in the kitchen. Um, and lots of cooking, cooking, not just throw it in the slow cooker and be done with it. So I, you know, I think this has the potential to be a really good cookbook. It's a lady who, you know, actually one of her things is that she got tired of one-pot cookbooks that weren't one pot. So <laughs> that was part of the reason why she did this. Uh, but it's just, she's got a lot of, you know, really so it's not not super obscure. Like I knew what arrowroot powder was, but why would I have that around? So, right. And it's not it's not something you but, can just go to Safeway and buy. You have to order it, and it's just you know. Um. But definitely check out the Domestic Geek. I love her show. She always does three or four um, re- um recipes in a video. Um. Like so, like say if you have a rotisserie chicken, she can give you three ways to cook it, you know, to, um, to, to use it, you know, like, oh, like through the yeah. week and just stuff like that. She's just, a, she's just really, really good. And, um, I'm looking forward to her beef stew recipe because uh, most of them are really complicated and I can't, <laughs> I'm not in the mood for complicated people. <laughs> yeah. It's just no fucking complicated. I, I, I can't do it's, There's a bazillion, there's a bazillion ways of cooking that, you know, a bazillion cookbooks already that focus on complicated, and I just don't need any of that crap in my life. Otherwise, I'd be looking at Julia Child's cookbook, right? Right. But I would definitely recommend you check out the Domestic Geek and her website. I think she has some eBooks. Um, and I know Mind Over Munch has eBooks because sometimes I get free ones with her newsletter. Um, good stuff. Really good stuff. And not well, complicated stuff, out. like... Mind Over Munch does um, these uh, one-pan oven meals where you put, like, your meat or your protein and your vegetables all on the same sheet and put it in the oven. <laughs> and it cooks together, like, you know, salmon and asparagus and whatever. <laughs> all on one sheet and you're done. So... Yeah, just just that's the thing. The one and done is I I don't care. I don't care. Chopping is fine, whatever. But it's just having a billion pots and pans and having to stand over the stove. Um, no, no, no. But uh, yeah, Domestic Geek and Mind Over Munch, and they're both on YouTube. And they also have a channel together called the Friday Night Supper Club, where they do stupid, complicated things together. And sometimes they succeed, and sometimes they don't, but they still eat it. <laughs> they wouldn't do separately, but they do together. <laughs> like they made a cheese fl- um, souffle that looked awesome, by the way. Um, but you know. So that's their Friday Night Supper Club. But their regular channels are focused on uh, good food, keeping it simple, keeping the ingredients clean, and, you know, just, you know, highly recommended. Thank you. I will do that. I mean, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to try some recipes in this book, but I just am just a little bit annoyed that most of the recipes I want to try, I have to order a bunch of shit first, you know. Right. Or, yeah, especially, and some of this I'm not sure I can find at the local, my local grocery store, so. I or even if I can. like the domestic geek because, like she'll say, I use quinoa for this, but you could use rice, you could use, um, you could do a risotto yeah, here. I mean, she, you know, she gives you a lots of options. You know, understanding, um, tell understanding substitutions and recipes really helps because, you know, like I look look at some like recipes that are on the forum. Um. Baking recipes, and when they're looking at making them out of making them gluten free or out of almond flour or whatever, you know, helping understand how to modify recipes or substitutes so that you can not use yeah, conventional stuff. You definitely stuff, need to check out Mind Over Munch because she is all in on that as far as like you know egg substitutes and and, and how to make a substitute egg, um, and like how to use different kinds of oils and almond flour and all that stuff, making your own almond flour. I mean, she's all in. So I, you definitely need to check out Mind Over Munch because she is like really all about whole, um, whole food eating and eating healthy. And um, she's, you know, she's keen on it. So, but the domestic geek offers you lots of different options and um, kind of opens up the food process. So that it doesn't seem so intimidating if cooking is something that intimidates you or if you get frustrated with having to find 25 ingredients for one recipe, <laughs> you know, this is ridiculous. So, but yeah, yeah, I recommend them okay, both. Okay, I'll check those out. Thank you. I love to cook though. And so I like to watch cooker, you know, cooking shows on um, YouTube uh, because they're not full of crap that you see on TV. I get bored. I don't want to see commercials and shit like that, but on YouTube, it's just the it's just the recipe, and they might eat a little bit in front of you, and then it's over. I I appreciate that. And sometimes it's funny too. Yeah, yeah. The domestic geek is loves to pun. She's terrible at it, but she loves to do it, and then she gets tickled at herself. <laughs> well, and we know Chef John likes to make things. Yeah, yeah. I am never getting over that pork loin, Chef John. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but yeah, the domestic geek and mind over munch. Write those stuff down, ladies. They will save your dinner one day. Um, let's get started. Uh, did we ever decide how we should say this person's name? I don't think so. But I've kind of in my head it's just kind of Isba. Isba is how I say it in my head. But I have literally have no idea. Isba, I'm sorry if I'm fucking up your name, Isba, but you didn't leave me a or pronunciation guide. Some people do. Okay. <laughs> Her question Yisba, is. Isba, I don't know. Isba, Isba, Isba. Um. As both a writer and a reader, I tend to get hyper-focused on a fandom. So for however long that that focus lasts, I won't be able to touch any other fandom. As a reader, that's okay, but as a writer, it's more of an issue. I've been wanting to do RT for years, but I know that whichever fandom I would sign up with might not be the one on my mind. 
once we get to the actual event. A few weeks ago, I plotted out my quantum bang for in one fandom, but my brain is now switched to something different. And I know chances are it'll change again a lot before the bang. Any tips to solving this problem? It makes finishing any story almost impossible. And that can piss me off. It pissed me off too. Um, First and foremost, uh, <laughs> I need to ra- I need to raise my thoughts. <laughs> um, well, I I would say I have like levels of answers to that, which is the first is that the first thing I would say is that someone who really cannot focus on a fandom um, for very long. It's probably not geared towards challenges where they need to finish something by a specific date or where they need to start participating by by a specific date. I mean, rough trade, the the span between the end of signups and the beginning of writing is about a little just slightly over two weeks. And if if so, so you could make up your mind about your story with what interests you on the 15th of October and start writing it two weeks later. And if that is too long of a window to stay interested in a fandom, then it, then I would say any kind of challenge is not a good fit. And so that's my first level is don't participate in challenges. I know that that can be, that sounds really limiting because it's not really a solution to, that somebody wants to hear. Um, but if if your attention wanders every two weeks to the point that you cannot write, you need to, you know, write what you can write in two weeks. And that would be where I would, you know, advise someone to, to point themselves is what writing can you get done for the length of time that your, your interest, if you can write a thousand words a day and your interest shifts every two weeks, then I would say you shouldn't work on stories that are more than 14, 15,000 words long. Um, and I, I know that's not be a good, really uh, limiting episode format. It, yeah, it be and that sounds really limiting, but you know, don't work on epics. Um, don't post works in progress um, and parse things down into smaller pieces. So, if you have an epic idea, parse it down into fifteen to twenty thousand word chunks. Um, 15 to 20,000 word either episodes or if you can do handle novellas, do a series of novellas. And, I mean, if you're someone who's cyclical in their attention, like today it's NCIS and next week it's Teen Wolf and the next week it's Stargate, you know, if you know you're going to come back to a fandom in six months or that's highly likely, then you know that you can pick up that series and work on it again when your attention is back. But if you have all these hanging unfinished stories, it just gets depressing. So don't start on epic length works. Don't do even novel length, really. Um, but if, and then my next, I mean, this, is, this is the case of where lack of information makes it difficult to really answer the question. Uh, but if with somebody like, you know, um, fandom-specific bangs are not for somebody with this kind of a struggle in their creative process. Um, I wouldn't do an NCIS or Teen Wolf or any kind of specific fandom-specific bang where um, my interest in that fandom has to last for the duration of getting the writing done. Um, unless you just, you know, have a story go, you know, ready to go in that fandom, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to advise any other way than that. But like in a multi-fandom challenge. 
Um, I would sign up. I, I mean, if if your interest can be held for 50k, um, and you've got multiple stories plotted, you would sign up, and then and with the quantum bang, I'm a little bit perplexed by the quandary because you could work on any 50k story. There's this is you're not signing up to a specific fandom. I mean, I don't know. We won't have any way of knowing if you change your project four times in the writing process. So, I mean, the question there really is, um, the question there really is, can they stay interested in the fandom for 50,000 words? And if they can't, then, well, the quantum bang would be out anyway. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a difficult question to answer, but a lot of it is timing. I mean, if I knew that my focus was likely to shift quickly, I would sign up like for rough trade at the last possible minute with the thing I was most passionate about at that moment. And if my interest didn't last for two weeks, then I'd be a dropout. It sucked, but that would be, I can't imagine that in that kind of scenario. But um, if I signed up for a bang, I wouldn't sign up for Bang hoping I'd get interested in that fandom. I would have to be interested in it right at that moment, and I would sit down and start working on it. And I would get that story done and file it away for, and then move on to whatever captured my interest next. Um, I mean, I think that's that. So the tier, my my first tier advice would be without knowing the person's constraints, is don't do challenges. And my next thing would be is that if you really want to do challenges, you've got to strike while the iron's hot. You know, sign up and start working on it. If you want to write a Teen Wolf story, but it's not time for the Teen Wolf bang sign-ups, we'll start working on the story. I mean, the time is now while you're interested. And then when the sign-ups roll around, you sign up and your story's already done. They have no, unless you post it, they have no way of knowing when you started your story. That's just crazy cakes. And I don't care. We've told people, if you could have written your story already before you ever signed up for the Quantum Bang, as long as you didn't post it, we, I don't care which, if, you, if you use your fix-it from another bang. Just go ahead and bring it in. I don't think people dropped out. There were some bangs that got canceled, and people said, you know, my story's a fix-it. Can I use it? Yeah, of course, as long as you haven't posted it. So that would be like my first thing is if, if you really can't stick with something for – if you can't stick with a fandom for – 50,000 words or for at least two weeks, various challenges aren't going to work for you. But if you can, then it means you have to sit down and write when your interest is engaged in that fandom. And, I, I, and I, so I'm not sure what the, what the ask is. Is it like how to extend your interest in something? Because I don't know how to, I wouldn't know how to advise somebody how to keep their interest up in something that it, it, they're not interested in. So... I have more opinions, but I'll shut up now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, What resonated with me with your question is that um, I have this problem, um, but it's slightly different. Now, I'm not in any single way diagnosing you, but I do suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder. And I also, when I was younger, I had a lot of problems with attention deficit. Uh, and, but what 
really the only thing that's ever helped me on the obsessive compulsive um, issue is medication. So if you're experiencing this particular quirk in other areas of your life, um, you talk to your doctor because it, 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 there's no shame in needing chemical help. Um, no shame in my game at all. I, my brain doesn't give me the chemicals I need. I buy them at the store <laughs> and I put them in my body. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> so, because <clears throat> I can tell, <clears throat> I have a pill dispenser and I set my pill up, my, my pills up for the week and I skip my, um, I take uh, Lexapro and I skip my Lexapro for a week and I could tell by day three, I couldn't concentrate. I, I was I was bouncing all over the walls. I was short tempered. Um, I uh, I obsessively read in the Harry Potter fandom for three days um, and slept very little. I was like, well, something's wrong. So I checked my spill dispenser, and I'll be damned if I had not. I forgot to put my Lexapro in the <laughs> in the in the little box. <laughs> so um, I'm not saying this is your problem. I'm saying if you're experiencing this. Um, this little quirk in other areas, it's worth having a conversation with your doctor um, because uh, better living through, um, I am a firm believer in better living through chemistry. Um, one of the ways that I combat this in myself is during the time that I was writing the quantum bang. Now this is the exact opposite of what you're probably doing. I was writing in one fandom I was reading in four different ones. I avoided reading in the fandom I was writing in. That's really good advice. I always, I always do. If, I write. Yeah, if you're, if you're like, if I, you'll burn out. I like, you'll burn if out. I'm writing in the fandom you're writing in. Yeah, exa- yeah, and well, also it's about, about absorbing other people's content. I have to be very careful with that because my mind cycles. But if I'm writing in Harry Potter, I'm reading Stargate. Or I'm reading Inception, or I'm reading Star Trek. Um, so I never read and write in the same fandom at the same time. I'm not saying it will help you, but it's worth trying. I also agree with Julie's advice about not pressuring yourself to. Um, uh, I don't that rough trade's really attractive. It's a really attractive environment, um, and I'm really proud of that. I'm I'm really proud of how attractive it is to writers. Um, and, and how, um, and how just you guys just go all in and, and, and do your best and, you know, and you post, and I, it's just really awesome. I never thought that rough trade would become what it has. And I'm just, I'm really thrilled with it, but it is a high stress environment. And if you are having issues with, um, obsessional, obsessional reading, writing, um, it can be too much stress. Just the idea of it can be very stressful. And for me, when I get really stressful, my creativity will shift. And that shift can also come with me abandoning one a project for another or moving to a new project um, or writing 10K on this project that I've been working on for 10 years and not working on something that I was supposed to be doing. Right. So how you respond to stress creativity creatively can can impact your productivity. Uh, 
Um, what I would tell you is um, just relax and give yourself permission to be the writer you are and not the writer you think you should be. Because it's not fair to you to set an expectation for yourself um, that's impossible. It would, it would be like me, tell, me telling myself I'm going to write a full-length novel every month for a year. Well, that would be ridiculous. Right? It's, that is well, yeah, beyond my ability. Um, uh, I know myself. Uh, I, I, you know, it is. Because by by April, I'd probably be in a hole somewhere. I'll, you know, I might well, actually it, accomplish two or three books and if my feet were broken. Um, but by book you know, four I or five... But I think it's the expectation of doing it that is the killer, right? Because, I mean, if, I would say if you talk, if you, if you look at a novel as being 50K, you probably have written a, a novel a month this year based on word count. Right. Um, but the, you didn't have the – but you didn't try to finish a project. There was no pressure to finish a novel. And you weren't go, driving to some expectation of doing 50K a month. But my guess would be is that you've averaged at least fifty k a month. So yeah, if I add it all up, probably. And that's um, and that's the difference between. But that's the difference between what someone's actually physically capable of and the expectation um, of doing that, killing the ability to do that. Right, because when I binge write, it can kill my creativity for weeks, sometimes months. But I do recommend that you not read in the fandom you're writing in. Break that habit, and that might help your focus problem. Yeah. Uh, and it, the, it, giving yourself permission to just be focused on one fandom exclusively, um, yeah, I hadn't considered that to be like an obsessional trait, but it kind of... It definitely, that is an obsessional trait, and you might want to do something that you need to to work on. But there, there is the. I'm never quite sure with questions when people when people ask a question. I'm never quite sure which advice it is that they need. Um, I, for instance, when somebody says they're having a trouble getting doing, they're having trouble writing at all, and you know how do how do they overcome their motivation? Da 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 da. Well. We talked a lot about we we talked on this show about motivation and here's the things you can do and da 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 da, and then well, I really talked to me in depth and never once, never once in months had she actually sat down at her computer, and put her hands on the keyboard, and that brought me up a little bit because if you sit down, you try to write, and you just stare at the page and like nothing is happening, that is a completely different thing than I never sat down at the computer stab somebody right now <laughs> so sometimes my head the advice is, yeah i know sometimes because sometimes the advice is you need to give yourself permission like kira said to be the writer that you are and if that means you're going to be a short story writer who jumps fandoms every three weeks then that's the writer that you are but if you don't let readers fuck you up over it 
Right, exactly. Don't let repeat and don't let, and don't fuck yourself up over it because that's really the harder expectation or your own expectations. You know, so it's hard to tell somebody need that advice or do they need the just do it advice? You know, because it's hard to tell what somebody's from 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 a from just a, a, a kind of a somewhat generic question um, where someone's sticking point is when they've tried to overcome their problem in the past. And like when I'm talking to somebody who struggles with motivation and they never sit at their computer and try to write. I'm like, well, you need to fucking sit at your computer. You just need to do it. Um, <laughs> Damn, bitch. Damn. You, you, we you need to have a name this podcast down. actually two questions and two bitches. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, because there's always, there's two sides. You know, it's sort of like, I tell people you should work on what you're inspired to work on, okay? But sometimes you need to just fucking get something done. So where there's always you got to strike a balance, right? People, if you're always just working on what inspires you creatively, you're never going to edit. I'm sorry, editing is a very different mood. I don't know any writer who's feeling creative and inspired about writing who goes, "I'm going to go edit," because when you're in an inspired creative mode, you're going <laughs> to write. Editing is a very analytical task, and. So if you want to finish your story, it's and he goes, well, how do I get inspired to edit? I'm sorry, you don't get inspired to edit. You just sit your butt down and you, you do it. You just got to do it. That's just work. But, no, I'm not trying, like I said when I, when I started, I'm not trying to diagnose you with my issues. I'm telling you that your language and how you, that you formed this question reminds me of myself. Um, and I... Uh, it also reminds me of my mother in an odd way. My mother has an OCD quirk that works like this. I honestly blame Netflix because it just didn't used to be a problem. Well, actually, you know, it, it was a problem, but it was a different problem. In my youth, my mother would watch the same five or six movies for a whole month. And then she would trade and watch the same five or six movies, you know, different movies, but the same ones over and over again. Well, now that she has Netflix and CBS All Access and Amazon Prime um, and Hulu, she will binge watch whole TV shows. And she will watch them till she's finished, and then she'll move to another one. For instance, she binge watches all five seasons of Grimm at least three times a year. This is an obsessive-compulsive. It's an obsessive-compulsive quirk. And as quirks go, it's not bad. I mean, you know, it it could be worse. It could be crack. Um, she recently binge-watched all of The Closer because it came back to Amazon Prime. She was really happy about that. But I think it plays. So, and being hyper-focused like that um, can bite you on the ass. I mean, it can really fuck you up. And that's like me when I binge-watched all 18 seasons of Midsummer Murders. <laughs> I would get up, uh, yeah. put it on, and write to Midsummer Murders. And I did it for I I watched all eighteen seasons of of, of Midsummer Murders, and um, it was my background stuff instead of music, and that's just crazy cakes. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, when I was in my late teens and early twenties, I was on medication for OCD, and I started getting therapy about, about the OCD. Um, 
and treatment therapy therapeutic intervention for for OCD is not like talk therapy. It's it's like exposures and you know you're, you're doing like whatever it is that that you, it, it's very kind of tactically focused. Not let's talk about your feelings. Um. So I'm not on medication now, but where, kind of where we left things was that I gave myself anything that was negatively infa- impacting my life. I felt like I had to stop. If it was causing a negative issue in my life, it had to end. I had to get control over those things. I did not do them. If I found myself starting to do them again, I would have to get help. Um, But I gave myself permission to just let the things that weren't a negative impact be the way they were. Just let them be okay. So like the obsessive hand washing thing, that had to stop because I mean it was causing me health problems, right? And it was making me miserable. Right. So there were a lot of things I had to had to quit. Um they I had to I had to, you know, get them out of my life. Um and it was, it, was, it was a lot of work and a lot of discomfort to be sitting there with what makes you miserable and having to endure it. But that's kind of the way you and but there are things I'm, I allow myself to be OCD about because if they're not having a negative impact on me besides maybe frustrating me or making me a little slower at some things, then then it then it's it's not worth tormenting myself to to try to be uncomfortable sitting with that thing. And I when it comes to something like if if there's an obsessional component with the way somebody approaches fandom, I would ask them that question. Is this negatively impacting you? And if it's not, then you find workarounds to deal with it. Um, if it um, is negatively impacting you, that's a different conversation. If it's preventing you from writing at all, well, is it really preventing you from writing or is it preventing you from writing the way you want to write? You know, Are you wanting to write epic, but really your attention is 10K? That's a different conversation. So it's it's a little bit, it's something that's really hard to just give a blanket answer to because if somebody is if somebody is miserable and they want and it's like I have to fix this, it's making me miserable that I can't stay focused on a project. Then that is something they would need to probably delve into, you know, with maybe talking to their doctor or something. But if it's not making them miserable and it's not that level of thing. Um, then you got to figure out what kind of writer you can be within those constraints. And it may be you're now a 10K writer or a 15K writer, or maybe you break things up into 15K series and whatever, you know, Teen Wolf thing you're working on um, gets a new episode every six months to a year because that's when you cycle back to Teen Wolf. Or you may never cycle back to Teen Wolf, but at least you, at least you have the satisfaction of knowing that whatever's out there is finished to some by some measure of finished as finished as an episode can be. Um, and those accomplishments are really important. They are. Finding a way to get something done within your constraints can actually broaden your constraint. So um, somebody says, I can't get anything done or I can't focus on getting a story completed, and they finish a 5K story or a 1K short or whatever, and all of a sudden they feel like they can do more. Um, we actually have a quantum bang participant and I won't say their name to call them out, but, um, she had never written, um, like say for instance, that she'd never written 25 K on a single thing. And we told her, you know, don't focus on your big word count, focus on your chapter word counts. And 
um, she set a goal for each chapter, and she hit 30K. And she was just like, holy shit, look what I did. You know, because she managed her goal and shifted away from the overall goal because it was stressing her out. Mm-hmm. And she she finished. She, I think she's at 60-some-odd K now. Yeah, yeah. And she had she, never she gone like, above 25 or 30. Um, and she she went all in, and she finished. Yeah, she did. She and she went she went more than double her her highest prayer prayer word count. So um, there's a there are some books um, out there that talk about how to make. This is a little bit kind of a tangent, but there's some books out there that talk about how to make changes in your life that stick. And one of the books I like the best. Um, I'll have to look up the title and give it to Kira later to put in the, in the podcast. But it talks about the the, it's the neurochemistry of the brain when it comes to change. And that big change is basically trauma, traumatic to your brain chemistry, um, which is one of the reasons why it's very difficult for you to adapt to really big changes. Because even if it's a positive thing, it's shocking. Um, and shocking your brain is not not conducive to long-term change. So one of the things, they're, and they're talking about whether it's you want to save money or you want to lose weight. I mean, the, the book is talking about that kind of life change. There's no reason it can't apply to writing. And what they talked about is all these different case studies of people who made very tiny, and I do mean tiny, incremental changes to reach a goal. And it would feel like they were doing nothing at first, but those incremental changes add up. And what happens is your brain adapts more readily to those tiny incremental changes so that it can take them on board without kind of a traumatic effect of a giant change. So if, you know, writing a thousand words a day sounds like it would be impossible to you, write a hundred words a day, write 50 words a day, write 10, you know, um, Make that your goal. There are and ways. If you write more than fifty, yay! And if you don't, then and the fine. thing is, you will ev- you you will eventually start to do more. Um, and it's funny. I I watch the. I sometimes you know sometimes change is big and shocking, and it needs to be cha- big and shocking. But I stopped watching hoarders because um, I I got the mess the the thing behind what they were doing with hoarders. Um, but as somebody who's had, you know, obsessive-compulsive issues in the past, and hoarding is a type of obsessive-compulsive anxiety disorder, it is a manifestation of it. Um, that giant shocking change they put those people through, the rate of recidivism is going to be outrageously high. Because whereas they have much more success with people who get rid of a tiny amount of stuff every day, as opposed to having to get rid of 70 80% of what they've got in one day. And yes, some some people do embrace the shocking change, but the percentage of people who get on board for that is much smaller than the people who make small changes that add up and they're able to adapt to that new life more gradually and they're not in a stressed out state all the time. So, and that doesn't, I mean, there's not a, there's not a, it's not a great parallel for writing, but it's not a really bad one either because being in a big challenge intimidates you. You have to figure out how to look at it as what the small challenges are, how to break it out into what you can deal with. Um, if committing to one fandom 
is difficult, cross over your two mo- current most, well, she doesn't have to, but, you know, some people write crossovers to deal with that fandom issue of fandom focus. Um, if you're tired of never finishing anything, write smaller things. <laughs> so it, it, and if you're tired of not being able to write, sit down on the fucking computer once in a while. Um, I'm never going to get over that. When was the last time you sat at the computer? What happened? <laughs> well, actually, what what I asked is what happens when you sit at the computer and you try to write. And this, and it was because I was trying to get a picture for why she was struggling so much. She says, "Well, I haven't actually sat down at the computer with that in mind for a few months. I just, I'm like, okay. My immediate <laughs> response help. would have been, you heifer. <laughs> why are you wasting my time? Yes, we have. Liz has had some difficulties with with getting into worrying worry about writing, especially big stuff. She finished her story and posted it, thirty one hundred words. Yay! I'm so proud. You got your story done, and it's done. And she posted it, and that's amazing. And you signed up for Rough Trade too, right? Didn't you sign up for Rough Trade? She did sign up for Rough Trade. I was like, go See? you. If it feels overwhelming to commit to something, if it feels overwhelming to commit to a fandom, then work on a challenge that doesn't require fandom commitment. Um, Gryffindor is fine. Dig in. Gryffindor is fine. It's actually because of people who struggle, a lot of people struggle with the novel length who wanted to have that level you know, the 25,000 words, so more people could participate. But that is the Gryffindor thing, right? Is I'm going to, I can commit to 25K because I still have Quidditch. <laughs> <laughs> but you should, I mean, you got to be true to what kind of, what the, the writer you are. And if it is, um, and does the and the question that and that's the question really is are you the kind of writer who needs somebody to give you some suggestions or food for thought things you could possibly do or you know and this this isn't you and you specifically I'm talking to the you you in the general or are you the kind of writer who needs a swift kick in the butt because you're moaning and groaning about lack of motivation but you've never been at the computer um, it is a psychological principle that action precedes motivation you have to do it before you're motivated to do it. The more you work on it, the more you're motivated to keep working on it. If you do nothing and you just accept that you're not going to be interested, and I don't mean that specifically at, at ISBA, but if people just accept they're not going to be interested, they sign up on the 15th of October and they're, they just accept it ahead of time and they're not going to be interested in their story by the 1st of November, then they're not going to be interested in their story by the 1st of November. That is just basically a truism. You set yourself up for that kind of thing. Um, but I would I would try to pro- more approach things of like the idea of like I'm gonna try and hope that I am still interested and maybe you won't be but hope is less likely the hope hope of that you'll be able to write 25k in a, in one fandom with two weeks between sign up and start is it's a positive approach to it as opposed to acceptance that you're not going to be interested in two weeks because I would bet that you probably won't be in those circumstances. 
And with the quantum bang, something about like the quantum bang where the writing, the writing window is several months, many, many, many months long. Um, you have to decide if you are able to stay focused on a fandom of 50K. If you can't find 50K of focus between, um, you know, June to July in a one-year period, then it's not going to be a good challenge for you. And that's okay. Not every challenge is a good fit for everybody. Some people are there never are going some, to be 50K writers. There is a writers. smaller multi-bang challenge. Um, you, were, you were going to make a list of them, weren't you? Yeah, we do. Uh, I do. I am going to make a list. I'll make a list and get it up on the Quantum Bank sometime in the next week for people who want to try smaller challenges. Um, I think that one requires even the, even in the bang, they're pairing up the artist and the author early on. I think, which makes mm-hmm. switching fandoms a little bit difficult. But you could talk to the moderators, and I think their minimum is, I want to say like one or three k or something. It's very, it's much it's much smaller. So. Um, but yeah, you could ask them about the switching fandom things. It's difficult in any challenge where the artist and the author are paired up early um, because switching fandoms means you have to get your artist on board. Um, the, I, I think that's a good, a good feature of most regular Big Bangs is that the pairing is done at the end when your story is done and the fandom is known. Um, but when you're doing like art and artist, artist and... Um, author matchups based upon on your idea, then they might not want you changing. So I'll put that list up, um, but you definitely talk to them about, well, what if I want to change and see how they want to handle it. Um, that's usually usually the, the fandom being set early as a function of the reverse bang. But, um, yeah, so it's a little bit harder to find bangs uh, where that's a, a trait. Um but yeah, fandom-specific bangs may not be a great fit. Although I will say that there's a, the the word count limit on fandom-specific bangs is very tiny, so a lot of a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them have very small word counts now. Um, as little as one k in one that I saw recently. Uh, so their so big is mostly how many authors can they pile into a challenge versus. How many words can you throw at a challenge? <laughs> yeah. Um, so in that case, what you could do, you know, write write a write worth the story for that that fandom, and when the signups come up, your story may already be done. I mean, you just figure out ways of managing your obsession around the challenge environment so that you can participate if you want to. Uh, um, I know some bangs they have like every bang kind of has some has quirks. Like, you know, that they want to be sure that, you know, like you submit a summary and that that's the story you write for the bang. And um, I actually find that really limiting, uh, the idea of being submitting a story idea. Uh, I've seen I've, I've a couple, uh, several banks I haven't signed up because they want a story summary. I, I did one. I did one. Um, signed up for one where I had to submit my story summary. And you could change it up to a certain date, but then they didn't want you changing it. I just thought that was kind of like I didn't understand why. Like this, and this wasn't the case of an early artist matchup. This was just they wanted your summary, and I never quite really understood why that was a trait of. And I wouldn't want to be a moderator for a bang where I was keeping track of story summaries and making sure that that was a story that got submitted. 
<laughs> kind of it, it feels intrusive and it feels like it, it inhibits creativity and so I've had a couple people email me about the QB that they feel like that the 50k thing was really limiting um, and it didn't encourage people to sign up when bangs are gearing more towards lower word counts but um, we don't I care run a bang. oh yeah, oh, wait. Care. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really that wanted rude? to do. It may be. I don't know. It, I feel the same way. I really wanted to pay homage and Cure agreed to the original Big Bang, which was um, 50K. Big. And <laughs> it, it was big. Uh, it's a big not, bang. And part of it is because right. okay, this is this is this is gonna sound awful, but I just a bang, a thousand word bang that loops artists in. I I would do my own art for one thousand word story that I found interesting, but I can't imagine asking somebody asking to do art for a thousand words. It just it 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 shorts my brain out. I know people are gonna take that horribly, but I can't help it. Care. That's just the way I feel about it. Uh, the whole it, it's the it's the it's the whole it's all the pageantry and the work and the administration and the the matchup and the working with somebody for a thousand words just I'm like no nah, no nah, dude no nah, man I can't do that no nah, dog <laughs> I like do books it. and I cannot lie in the immortal That's right. words of Azure but so but seriously though um uh it t- I don't see any I mean. Here's the thing about me and Big Bangs. I don't actually like the idea of participating in any of them. Um, and I'm only participating in Jilly's because I'm involved with it and I've got a level of control available to myself that makes me happy. <laughs> she knows there's not any stupid rules in that would make her miserable. Because, seriously, a lot of the rules in, in Big Bangs make me want to punch somebody. Um and I'm like, but, you know, actually, um, I was thinking about it today and um, about the um, the bang, the quantum bang, and um, the posting schedule. And it crossed my mind to ask Julie to post my story last. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. And because, you know, the thing is, is I do have a fairly large audience, and I would like the other participants of the challenge to get the attention they're due. Um, And I think that if I started the bang off, that it would take away attention from them, and that's not fair. Um, And that, that might sound arrogant, and that probably, that, that's probably super arrogant. I probably shouldn't put this on my podcast. <laughs> But no, I, I actually actually I I don't I I don't think it's arrogant to be aware of your your skills and and your audience. Um, I mean, my website has to be aware. Members and yeah, so I get between you're, forty you're, and fifty thousand views on every single story the day it comes out. So um, I just I actually think it would. Be, I think it's admirable that you. It's not. It's me. To me, it's not arrogant to be aware of that, and I think it's admirable that you would be willing to be posted last um, to 
for the reasons you said, to, to keep the attention on the other participants. Um, it, you wouldn't have to wait more than a couple weeks, folks. Um, yeah, we're posting all the, the posting. first the 15th of June. Um, so it'll That's be pub- it. it's posted it's by two- June. So, yeah. It's a, it's a two-week post because she and I need downtime between before rough trade starts in July. So it's two weeks. It's, it, and if we have uh, my goal, my, my original hope when we started this was that we would have at least 14 people finish so that we could post one per day. If everybody crosses the finish line, which I've never seen happen in a bang, but if it happened, if we would have a lot of posts per day because we're up into close to 90 signed up authors. Um, right. It's pretty scary. So, um, that love asked about even posting anonymously. Now, I am perfectly willing to be anonymous during the um, the claim of the art, but I don't know how to say this without being. I'm just going to say it. I am not prepared to post 115k of fic without putting my fucking name on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it also if it, anonymous posting means that people can't post to their own websites or Ao3 and go where their usual readership is. So, um, no, I'm not. I wouldn't limit that. Would I'm not. Lim- there are. We do have a lot of people. We have a, a much larger number than I expected. About ten or fifteen people signed up anonymously, which is fine. That's why we offered the option. I just didn't know people were actually going to take us up on it. <laughs> um. Yeah, but, I was surprised too. Um, you know, yes, but, there are contests, and I was even in one. I was in a McShep match where I did an anonymous offering, and half my audience guessed it was me. I got a fuck ton of emails saying, "Is this your story?" <laughs> and every single one of them that sent me a, a, a story guessing got the right one. Yeah. We could, we could. I mean, it's possible to do an anonymous thing where people have keep it on the site anonymous for two weeks, um, and then it gets revealed. But here's this, usually things like that are to drive traffic. Um, it's exclusive to the site until such and such a date, and then you can post it wherever you want. I'm not interested in driving site traffic. I I don't care about those kinds of shenanigans. Um, Usually anonymous reveals are around presence, like Secret Santas and stuff. And I get the two week or one week, you know anonymous period where it's listed as anonymous um but i just am not prepared to embrace that level of administration um when this is buddy when, when our posting schedule butts up against rough trade it and it's also a hassle it's a hassle because we'd have to post everything under like one anonymous username and then go back into every single post later and attribute it to the right author so that they could get control of their story back and they wouldn't have any control of their story during the anonymous period. They wouldn't be able to edit it or put, you know, fix the typo that they saw. It's just it, the AO3 anonymous feature works really well because, you know, you um, you maintain control of your story. It just appears as anonymous everywhere until the date that the challenge administrator sets for everything to go live. Which is great. It works super well. And if we were running this challenge on AO3, we could do something like that. But I would never, ever run a challenge where I required people to post on AO3. So that's not an option, no, me which means we'd be doing manual, yeah. manual anonymous. And I just, I can't no. commit to that level of. So I would rather, like, <clears throat> you know, even saying that the, the admins of the challenge are going to post last 
um, than than try to do some anonymizing. Yeah, um, Ellie said something in the chat room I wanted to ask her about. She said I wouldn't want to be the one posted the same day. Are you talking about being posted with me, or just well, what did you mean, Ellie? Do you need to go in the corner? Don't you want to be my posting buddy? <laughs> <laughs> well, she's she's forthright about her lack of desire to post. Yeah, you know, the thing is, I had somebody said to me once. Um, I was talking to somebody Fine. a Lady couple of days ago. My posting buddies. Yes, we could be. Uh, and they were just straightforward about talking to somebody one day. And this is you and I. We we were not syncing up. We were not syncing up. But Kara and I happened to both post one night at Rough Trade minutes apart. I didn't know she was working on her post. She didn't know I was working on my post. We posted minutes apart. And somebody pings me in the talk and she says, you know, I, I, they had just posted too, like a few minutes before, whichever one of us went first. So, you know, I really hate going up at the same time as you or Kira, and it really sucks to go up at the same time as both of you. <laughs> I said, well, sorry. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. But she was just really forthright about it. She just, I just feel like she, and this is her perception, and I don't know that it, it bore out the read, the, the hit count didn't bear out what she said. But she's like, it's like nobody's reading for as long as it takes them to get to the other post. I was like, well, the thing no, is, girl, that's is not that, true. Look at your hits. But what I would say is that on days that I post to Rough Trade, everybody who has posts up gets more hits. And when I dropped out of Rough Trade because of um, illness in April, that that April, that one time, side hits for the whole mm-hmm. site went down. Oh yeah, it was it was it was dead. That was the first time I really started functioning more as an admin, like doing moderation and stuff. Was that challenge? Um, and that's I not me being arrogant or bragging. It's just I it's just I bring truth. about fifteen thousand people to the table. Um, who are subscribed to my website, who pay attention to my posts. Um, yeah, once people realized you weren't participating anymore, they stopped reading. Um, it was like, whoa, dude, what the fuck just happened? Because comment counts were way down. And I had, I spent the whole month, the whole month when I wasn't writing, talking to people behind the scenes, telling them not to get demotivated because it felt like they felt like nobody was reading their stuff. Because nobody was commenting. That's one reason why I put um, the um, the view count up so that authors would see that. Because the thing is, is that um, I can get 50,000 views on a single story on my site and get five comments, ten comments. Yeah. And the people participating in Rough Trade weren't seeing the views. They weren't seeing how much they were getting looked at. Um, that view option on posts so you can see how people who are reading your stuff. And also, now, the um, we use... rules are really strict and people are afraid of me. And sometimes I just don't say anything on Rough Trade because they don't want to get banned. Yeah, and that's also, it's something, it's, a, it's something that somebody pointed out to me recently because I hadn't connected the comment decline to this but it used to be that you had to be logged in to read and so people were already logged in they'd comment and that changed and now you only have to be logged in to comment and so comment counts when that switcheroo happened 
people were the comment and likes went way down, even though reads actually continued to climb. So because um, they're lazy, they are lazy. And they can't want. They don't want to. There is to keep in mind that a lot of people are invested in their feedback, and when rough trade gets cleared off, so does their feedback. So a lot of them have it in the back of their mind. Why should I comment? It's just going to be deleted in a month anyway. But, uh, well, they may think that, but the thing is authors can subscribe to their comment thread. And before I even knew about that, like way back when in the dark ages, I had little, every comment, I'm, okay, I admit it, I had a little screenshot of my comment section. And my comment section on the first few stories <laughs> wasn't very long, so it didn't take me long to screenshot the fucking thing. Um, You're adorable. Truly. I say? Oh, that actually is a good time to announce this. I have inserted a plugin into Rough Trade that automatically subscribes you to your own posts. So um, you will get copies of all of your comments in your email. And it will be automatic. Now, if Does you, it, now yeah, me and Jilly posted our project files before I installed it, so we had to subscribe to our project files. But um, all of you who did after that, you're all set up, and all your posts will be set up that way, too. And also, readers yeah. will be able to subscribe to um, comments, too, if they want to. Yeah, because sometimes readers want to know, you know, they they want to follow a comment thread for some reason, or if they've if they've gotten into a I don't actually I don't know why readers, never mind. There are times on other sites when I understand a I reader following a comment thread, but whatever. Uh, um on Ref Trade, the reasons why you would follow a comment thread on another site don't hold out, don't don't bear out on Ref Trade, which is like you're in a discussion with the author or you've asked a question you're waiting for an answer to, because neither one of those things are likely to well, questions not going to happen, and it's unlikely you're going to get in a comment in, into a conversation in your comments with a Ref Trade writer. But um, yeah, so a lot of the reasons people would subscribe to a comment thread doesn't really bear out there um, on Ref Trade, but you know you can do it if you want. But it was just that that April, and then people, Kira got like comments from people that April about how they wouldn't have signed up if they hadn't known they weren't going to be writing with her. And it wasn't that they wanted to write alongside Kira; it's they, but they were disappointed that they weren't getting her audience, which was really insulting. So I was really impressed with all the people who stuck it out and finished that month because, yeah, it, we had it, we had really low traffic that month. Um, but for the people who were there, you know, it was great. That was when the Facebook group was still really active, and we had a lot of uh, we had a lot going on on Facebook that month because that's how people were kind of keep each other motivated. And the people who stayed in the challenge really banded together to help each other out that month and help them stay motivated because there were times when you'd post something and there'd be it'd be crickets. And if you're used to people at least getting one or two comments on your section on your on your chapters or whatever, it is like, did I fuck up? That's the first thing you ask yourself when they're like 48 hours pass by and nobody's commented. It's like, did I fuck up? What's happening here? Um, and that's and that's not it at all. I mean, that's not it. That's not the case at all. So, but yeah, there are some people who participate in Rough Trade because they want my audience. There are people who have joined Rough Trade just specifically. 
to be in that sphere. And it's weird. And <laughs> that probably sounds arrogant too. Um, and it's just insane. It's insane. But the thing is, but the funny thing is, if you're if if you're the kind of if you ever get stressed out about who you're posting alongside or you feel like you some there are, we have a lot of readers who read everything unless there is um, like a co- like to trigger content that, or a fandom they just don't like. But if it if it's a fandom they read, they read every freaking thing in that on Rough Trade that's in the fandoms that they read, uh, and and a which lot is of why them, I put fandoms way, on your titles so that the readers can find their fandom to read. So we do. There are some readers who read almost everything, in a fa- and and they a lot of them also tend to comment fairly frequently. With how I know they read everything is because they're commenting on almost every single post. Um, and so there's people. Some somebody's going to read your thing, and if they don't, if if they get four notifications at the same time. You know, sometimes it's hit or miss, which one, but they're going to get to you. Whoever you're, you, whoever managed to post alongside you, they're going to get to your story. They may start with yours, or they may start do, read yours last. But I sometimes I doubt it has anything to do with anything other than the order in which it happened to be in their inbox. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've I've had seen people talk about that. They'll be like oh, I had just finished reading the last post, or I just finished reading, you know, whoever had been right before you, and, and I went back to Rough Trades, like all these people had posted, and I just went down the list. So just don't sweat who you post with. People will get to people will get to it. We, I mean, every once in a while somebody posts in a fandom that is so obscure, or they're writing a story and something, I've never like, I'm like, I'm worried nobody's going to read this. And somebody always does. <laughs> There's somebody always reading Jilly it. Jillian's weirdly challenging ellie i i totally get why you said that she said i weirdly felt like i was in a race to finish with jilly <laughs> she'll make you, you work right race. she'll be like Whew. okay second question we got 48 minutes to answer it um rothesis is is that how you would say that rothesis uh, that's how i that's how i'm saying in my head rothesis asks what characteristics make for a type of character that you have difficulty writing. Some fandoms can be enjoyed without really inspiring fan fiction. What have you noticed are common features of this type of creative work? The first and foremost thing that I notice about a very small fandom is that often the canon is so amazing and perfect that there's very little that has to be fixed. Yeah. And their fan fiction ends up being love letters. <laughs> They're all love letters to the characters. If I wrote Farscape, it would be one big love letter to Aaron Song. <laughs> I might even call it Dear Aaron. <laughs> love John. <laughs> that's actually, you know, reading that, that's actually two distinctly separate questions that they almost have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> I hadn't even noticed well, that when we picked one. this question. Right. Um, but I yeah, honestly, I think fandoms that are really small or fandoms that don't have any fan fiction, it's because either they're utterly uninspiring or 
the canon is so amazing and awesome and perfect that you don't feel any need to add to it. You don't need to fix it. I mean, I feel the same way about, actually, Babylon 5 intimidates the shit out of me. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. Babylon Five intimidates me. Inception intimidates me. Um, I have some Inception works in progress, but it really fucking intimidates me. Um, but Farscape is perfect. Farscape is perfect. As long as that stupid ass movie doesn't come out. <laughs> Practically perfect in every way. It's the Mary Poppins of fandom. It's like, why are you messing with it? <laughs> right. I mean, it is. It, it's absolutely perfect. Um, so I think, that, yeah, I mean, so what's there to fix? But a show that has a lot of problems, all in. A book series with a lot of problems, there's going to be 10,000 fix. There's a reason why Harry Potter is one of the most popular fan fiction fandoms on fanfiction.net. Um, and I, it probably runs a close second with Lord of the Rings on AO3. Because holy fuck. <laughs> So the, the the other the other so there's uh, of the two questions there's a there's like two parts to the well the the second question which is what have you noticed are the common features basically of creative works that that don't inspire fan fiction and Kira mentioned the first was really satisfying canon it's like we're so happy with canon that you don't feel the need to go out and do much more than you know hug it. Um, but the other thing, actually a little bit segues into the other other issue, is that characters that are very difficult to write. Or that, um, or from shows that are not character focused. Um, some of the procedurals that were very good from a procedure perspective, but weren't really focused on the characters, are, they have, I, I would bet you without looking that they have very tiny fandoms because there's not really nothing to work with unless you're just really interested in writing a court case. Um, Law and Order SVU, just to guess, I've never checked this, folks, but I would guess that Law and Order SVU of all the Law and Order franchises would have the biggest biggest fan offerings because there was a lot of character work. The original Law and Order series, you got almost nothing about those characters. It was every episode of that show for as long, almost as long as the original Law and Order ran was a standalone thing with no ties to anything past. They were there to do a job. And so I would imagine that there's just nothing to work with. Um, it's characters more often than anything that inspire, I think, inspire fandom. And when you're not really getting anything about the characters, where, where is there to go unless you just really want to go write a court case? So we got some of them. Like we got a little bit more about Mike Logan later in the series, but it wasn't much. It wasn't enough to inspire me to want to go look to see if there was Law and Order fan fiction. But like criminal, I said, um, um, criminal intent was rife with characterization, and you know um, Vincent yeah. D'Onofrio owned that shit. I mean, it was just amazing. What an amazing character. But Although also, also that I still called him Edgar. Edgar, yeah, he is Edgar. Also, but also, I would find him a very difficult character to write, which also feeds into what the first, first, first part of that question was. I wouldn't be able to write that character. Um, because a lot, it, 
I don't know that I could capture his, and the issue is capturing the character voice and relaying it in a way that the audience recognizes it. Because you had probably, you know, one or two writers writing his dialogue and, and Vincent D'Onofrio interpreting it to stay, keep it consistent in character. And yeah, you, did, yeah, you disappeared interp- for like 20 seconds. I disappeared? Yeah. Where did I weird. But yeah, it's just it's such a strange thing when you have a, a fandom that um, doesn't really have any character basis. But but Vincent D'Onofrio, his interpretation of that character would be the, one of the hardest things to capture. His movement because it was as much looking at that character as hearing him, the way he moved and his hand gestures and stuff. Work. His, his, his work there was amazing. And that is a hard thing to put in the page. Vincent D'Onofrio? Um, he played a uh, stunning character Gorin, actor. Right? Didn't, didn't he, didn't he yeah, play Gorin? Bobby Gorin, yeah. Yeah, yeah Bobby, Bobby Gorin. Um, um, it's a, it's a uh, Law and Order Criminal Intent was a, was a spinoff of the original Law and Order, and um, they did major crimes, and... Um, uh, uh, just really good stuff. Um, and but Vincent D'Onofrio was a juggernaut. Uh, I ha- yeah, I, you know, tell people said that Rodney is difficult to write. I would say that Bobby Gorin would be like Rodney on crack. Oh yeah, it, it's like it's like an order of magnitude worse. <laughs> It, he he's smart. He has a lot of mental quirks. Um, I would actually almost prefer to write Monk before I would write Bobby Gorin. And Bobby Gorin is fifteen times the character. He's really interesting and amazing, um, fascinating character, but intimidating as fuck to write. Because if you look at the Law and Order franchise as of the different shows, Criminal Intent, SCU. Um, oh, Bobby Gorin is way Bones is uh, Bones is a light would be to me. I wouldn't have any problem writing Bones. Bobby Gorin would be a challenge. She's a lightweight. You Bones? mean Bones I from even, Bones? I, I don't even find Bones to be as hard as Rodney. Honestly, I'm not interested in the fandom remotely, but I wouldn't find her an intimidating character. Um, Temperance Brennan is is interesting, but she's not. Um, she wouldn't be difficult to figure out. Holy shit, he was Thor in Adventures in Babysitting. Holy shit. I will always see him in Egger Egger suit. It's like he's wearing an Egger Egger suit. suit. (laughs) It was was like he was wearing an Egger suit. That was funny as fuck. It's like he's wearing an Egger suit. She was great. I mean, if you... The more when Law and Order, Law and Order, the original Law and Order, there was I, there was no character that I just go, oh, I, I got I got to write that character. But there were a lot of interesting characters in SVU. There were a lot of interesting, and especially Criminal Intent. Criminal Intent rolled in. It was like holy shit. They went on this character, characterization thing. They just wow, and, and they just went all in and let Vincent D'Onofrio. It was a real journey again with Vincent. With him, it is as much what he looks like as what he is saying. 
And that makes him especially difficult to write because putting in ticks and stuff can get, A, it's difficult to do well, and it can be, it can come off tedious. So the way he moves in a scene, the way, the thing is, is that Vincent D'Onofrio eats any scene he's in. I mean, he is, but in Criminal Intent, they, they let him. <laughs> there was no, yeah, dial it back. No, no, they, they let him go whole hog. And, um, you're just stunning. Stunning. So I would never approach writing him. Now, I, I just people, I, Rodney, I don't mind writing Rodney. I don't mind writing Rodney. Um, I'm not too keen on being in a deep, deep in his point of view. I'd rather be in John's point of view than Rodney's. I'm, I've written from Rodney's point of view, but I don't like to get in, introspective in his point of view. Um, I just, yeah, I'd rather write from John's point of view. For me, he's a, um, I, I feel like I understand the way his mind works more. As ridiculous as that may sound, um, but with Rodney, it's not. Huh? Both? It sounds ridiculous. See, Ellie said, "Did did he? Did she say riding or riding?" Oh, <laughs> I said both. Yeah, let's let's go ride. Right. I'm willing to ride either both too. It's fine. Yeah, but like, good. it it took me a while to really approach doing an entire story from Gibbs' point of view. Because I wasn't sure that was the point of view I wanted to. I was like, am I going to be able to do that? Well, um, he's not a kind of character I usually write. Uh, I don't usually write surly characters. <laughs> um, and also with somebody who There's doesn't head talk, space. they're going to have, yeah, his headspace is going to be different. It's going to be very, and I'm like, how do I do that? How do I do a the headspace of somebody who doesn't really value open and clear communication? <laughs> I just, it was, it's a, it was, it was different. And I did it for, I did it in two stories. I actually was mostly his point of view for two stories. Um, and I feel like I did fairly well with it. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I yeah. thought the stories came out well. I didn't make him sappy in his head or anything. It was like a lot of things I was worried about. I just was like mindful of this is the way I perceive the character and. It's easier for me if I'm going to write a character like that, like really deeply, just to stay there, not to try to write anybody else, um, not to try to switch points of view, because it it's just a difficult POV to begin with. And I find writing Gibbs be harder than writing Rodney, honestly, from their point of view. If it's not a point of view character, ca- catching somebody's voice in dialogue for me is a lot easier than capturing their 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 voice, quote unquote, from their point of view in their narrative, and that's why one character. You know, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. One character I was hesitant to write um, was Danny in Hawaii Five O. I was I was worried I wouldn't get his rhythm because he's got a very distinct yeah. method or or rhythm in his voice. Um, and then when it came to the point when I was writing him in Ascendant, um, when he comes to get Steve, uh, and the line just kind of flew out of my mouth, look at you and your tiger, or you and your ridiculous tiger. And it just, it felt like Danny in my head when I was doing those lines. I was like, okay, great, that 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 worked. That sounds like Danny in the show. Um, good. 
But I was worried that I wouldn't because he's, I don't know, I was just worried. And sometimes you don't know you're going to get there until you get there. Yeah. I, sometimes you build it up to be a bigger thing than it is, and then you do it, and you're like, what in the world was I worried about? I don't know. Um, right? I was all, I, the first time I wrote Gibbs, I was worried about that from his, that, that, his dialogue from that point of view. It's like, am I going to get him? Am I going to get that sort of terseness correct from him? As a wordy author writing a character who is very terse, that is going to, to me, that's a challenge from the jump. Uh, I would rather over-explain than under-explain, and Gibbs would rather just not say anything. <laughs> so like, right? But it didn't mind <laughs> It didn't wind up being that big a deal. But the funny thing is, I actually, when I, sometimes I read stories where it feels like they didn't even try with Gibbs to keep him terse. I mean, he's communicative and open and telling people everything and, like, you know, 500-word paragraphs of dialogue from him. And I'm like, whoa, I don't recognize, I, I don't recognize this character yeah, Ellie, the problem, Ezra, I feel like I never have a big enough vocabulary to write Ezra. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's it's a struggle. I, I don't mind working, um, working. <laughs> I don't mind writing. <laughs> Let me enunciate my T's. I don't mind writing characters that um, speak with a high level of erudition. But um, man, that can, but it can be a challenge when you have a character who never uses slang, who never uses one word when ten will do, who uses the biggest possible word, who doesn't say you have an upset stomach. They would always favor saying dyspeptic. It, it just it gets to be it's it's a struggle. And that can be off putting. That can that could actually be. Um, in the in terms of the question, when I see Ezra written well, I, I adore it. I absolutely adore it because I can hear the actor's voice. It is not an easy voice to, to master. Uh, yeah, there is a rhythm too because he's a southerner, so there's that southern rhythm to his speech, but there is no southern colloquialisms coming out of his mouth. So. Um, he's like a he, he talks like a I guess like a Harvard language professor from the South. It's it's an interesting court. It's an interesting character they put together for him. But uh, let's see. Um, what I would, of the uh, talk. I would actually hesitate to. Um, to write several characters because of their language. But the one that really sticks out in my brain is Doc Holliday in Tombstone. I, I wouldn't even know what to do with him. <laughs> yeah. That, that's both a vocabulary and a rhythm, and it's it's the whole thing. Uh, Val Kilmer locked that out of the ballpark. I, I can't touch that. I don't even know what that is. Um Great work, dude. Great work. Um, it's just wow. Um, well, <laughs> and he, yeah, yeah. 
he famously, you know, basically. <laughs> I, Tombstone was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed it uh, much better than the other film. You know, when they were doing du- you know dueling films over different topics. Yeah, with the wider the white. Wyatt Earp, yeah. Wyatt Earp wasn't bad. It just, it, it's no, it's just was so, Tombstone. It was so slow, and Tombstone was really, Tombstone was really kept you interested, and the dialogue was really good, and, and Doc Holliday made it. I mean, and he, he made that movie. Oh yeah, he did. Oh yeah, he did. Other uh, other dueling Tombstone um, um, movies. I prefer Armageddon over Deep Impact. Deep Impact, and while I enjoyed Mars, the, the, the Mars movies, I prefer Red Planet to Mission to Mars, or whatever it was, that Gary Sinise movie. Was yeah, that? I like Red Planet more, too. Yeah. I love Red Planet. And I like um, Obviously, Dante's I got a thing for Volcano. <laughs> yeah. And I like, I like Dante's Peak than Volcano, but I... I don't have a problem yes. watching Volcano because the idea of L.A. turning into a volcano amuses me. I agree. I also prefer Dante's Peak over Volcano. But I got a thing for Pierce Bronson <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Especially, yeah, yeah. That was, that was, that, that was, the be- I think, the, kind of the middle beginning of his, like, super hot phase. He, I, I think he got more attractive as he got older. Um, some of his movies... Hello, Thomas Crown. I, yeah. Some of the movies he was in when he was younger, Holy I didn't shit. really find him as attractive as I did when he got older, but yeah. Um, Thomas Crown probably doesn't have a very large fandom either because it's perfect. <laughs> Holy shit. When I write a character who has a very, particularly who is um, has a large vocabulary, uh, and and is letting you know, and it was a character like Ezra or Doc Holliday or somebody like that, and also has a very distinct rhythm, it's typically not a character I would approach for a, a challenge where I'm post rough draft, because a lot of times I'm I'm fixing their dialogue on an edit. Um, There'll be more slang than there should be. The rhythm is off because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna slow down my writing to try to get every line of dialogue perfect. Um, I'll go through and you know change the language on an edit. That's usually easier than sitting there agonizing over every line. I'll try to get it approximately right, even though I know it's not going to be. It's sort of for me also the same way I approach writing a teenager. If I'm going to be writing a teenager, I'm just going to wing it on the rough draft, and then I'm going to try to fix the colloquialisms and stuff. And um, on, when I edit it, otherwise See, I just surprised. slow myself down. Huh? Lady Hall says that there are 28 stories for Tom for the Thomas Crown Affair. Where if any of them are good? <laughs> I'll have to go read them. <laughs> because you know, well, honestly, that is the hottest fucking sex scene I have ever seen in a movie that wasn't X-rated. That, was, that wasn't X-rated. Yeah. I mean, the thing the thing about some movies is like I I could the, some movies that are really good that 
spawn a fandom, it's usually because there is a pairing potential that isn't just isn't explored at all. So if you've got really good canon, but you've got unexplored possible sexual tension, that can launch a fandom like nobody's business. Yeah, in Beauty and the Beast fandom, care to guess where most of the fix end up? From the from the live action movie, that yeah. one it would be. I would. My guess would be it would be uh, Beast and Gaston. Fucking slasher. Uh, Lafu and Gaston. <laughs> oh come <laughs> on, really? Yes. <sighs> okay, so <laughs> one member of Gaston is the Beast and Lafu is the Beauty. Yeah, because, I mean, honestly, I have to say, I did not like, I liked LeFou. I thought LeFou was just kind of amusing in the car, in the, in the animated film. But but I didn't like Gaston. And I was supposed to like him in the animated. He was the villain, right? The true villain in that movie. And to the live action, and I find the two lead characters to actually be kind of dull. And Luke Evans, he's so inhabited that role. He can he did. But he was obnoxious. Yeah. He was obnoxious he as fuck, but I didn't care. So if they paired Gaston with every single cast member, I would not be surprised because he was the shining star of that movie. And yeah, I'm sure there's some he was element really good. of it. I'm sure if there's some element of the fact it's because he was hot, but Gaston was the most attractive person in the animated film too, and that didn't make a difference. So, uh, although a lot of people don't really write, I don't know how much fandom there is for adults in the Disney animated stuff. But in the live action, he was so good. And it just, I don't know, and hot. He was really, really good in that role and hot. And so if they paired him with Belle and Beast and LeFou and and Belle's father, I wouldn't be surprised if people were exploring that <laughs> character, you know, with anybody they can get their hands Maurice, on. Maurice and Gaston, I don't know how I feel about it. I don't I don't feel good about it, but I wouldn't be surprised. Well, but like look at the I really good enjoyed also. the Beauty and the Beast movie. I did. I, I enjoyed it. It um the animated version it. was I my did. favorite film when I was little and I enjoyed the live action. I I love the animated. I adore I but I like the animated better. Um I like the cuz the animated just I just found the the live action kind of boring and I found I thought Emma Watson was kind of flat. Um that first scene that I th- I think the tone for me was set by that first her first musical number. It I felt like she was so bad in that number and I don't mean the singing, I mean the way she delivered it that I almost couldn't get get couldn't get past that for the rest of it because that was that was like my favorite musical number when I in the in the animated and Belle was so dream she was so like she was such a dreamer, um, like the absent-minded dreamer and stuff. And Belle, the way it was portrayed in the live action, just so upset me. <laughs> I took it. I took it really personally. <laughs> I was like, somebody need to give her another walkthrough on that. They need to give her another take because that was bad. <laughs> she just seems bored, um, and not in a good way. <laughs> Yeah, but sometimes hot. I mean, people. I know that there's like people tell you that people have their slash goggles on, and all you need is hot. People are going to to go right about whoever the hot person is. But there are a lot of hot actors who've done a lot of roles, and that doesn't spark much in fandom. So it takes a lot more than hotness 
to spark the interest of fandom. Otherwise, Dracula Untold will would have the biggest fandom out there because he right. took his shirt off a lot. Right alongside Tarzan. Right. There's a lot of shirts coming. There's some amazing shirt coming off stuff. Shit, Tarzan. Holy shit. Where is that gif? That scene Um, when when they come to Africa and he comes to her in in their bedroom. Uh huh. (laughs) Like yeah. Holy shit. That ain't it, but that's funny. Um, Might want to send Margo. Are you okay, Margo? <laughs> what hello? Now, how do I do? I, in chat, do you put a GIF in in as a video or as an image? As an image. Well, I'm about to I'm about to find out. If that works. Yeah, yeah. See, <laughs> he could do that all day. <laughs> as, I, as, I, as I said, if if Dracula would have an enormous fandom, if hotness was all all we all we needed for for fandom, but it, that is not all we need, and that's a good thing, folks. That's a good thing that we need to see character chemistry and character development, and they were not just ready by. He who has the best abs in the planet. Um, Look, there will be a lot more fix about Tom Hilson's perfect T-shirt. <laughs> if attractiveness is all it took. We need to start. We probably need to at some point write T-shirt fix just to get the crack out of the system. Well, let's see. What else might? What might else might prevent um, type of character that you have difficulty rating? Um, I do think it's a general kind of macro thing that if a character, and this, this falls in with the Bobby Gorin thing, is that if a lot of it is, um, if a lot of it is um, visual, if there's a huge component to their rhythm and their speaking style that is something you need to see, visual quirks, the way they move their body. That is, a little bit, to me, I find that to be a difficult thing to, to write. Um, it's not impossible, but it is difficult to get that character voice right when the way they move is so integral to the, the character. And Bobby Gorin is a character like that. It's not just what comes out of his mouth. It is the way he says it. It is the pauses. It's the inflections. It's the way he moves his hands and the way he tips his head. And that's difficult. I just don't like to go Especially down that path. Especially when he's got the scent. When he's got the yeah, scent he, and he's done and, and it's like he kind of tilts his head and you know mm-hmm. he's got it and you know he's got them and you're like, yeah, get him, Bobby, get him. <laughs> You go, Edgar. So I, yeah, you can go get him, Edgar. Get, get your get 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 your Edgar suit on. So that kind of character in general, kind of, is not that the character turns me off. I love the character. It just makes it not a character I'm likely to write. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, in general, I do prefer to write characters who use their words. 
<laughs> so I, I, it's not that I shy away from characters who are terse, but they are, make things a little bit harder. Having a Gibbs as a prominent role in a story makes things more challenging than having a Tony. You know what I mean? So clearly I don't when not I wrote do it, Gibbs, but... When I wrote Gibbs, I really just um, decided not to be um, angsty about it. <laughs> Because I knew I probably wasn't going to get it right. So I was just like, fuck it. <laughs> and I wonder if that's something that happens a lot in the NCIS fandom. They know they're not going to accomplish his voice. So just a fuck it. <laughs> well, as long as they don't go, oh, Gibbs fuck it, have and have a full personality crying. transplant. <laughs> mm-hmm. As long as there's no tears, NCIS fandom, I'm all right. But, man, what is with you guys in the yeah, crying? Yeah, that... Mm, that that you know I I don't ladies and I I say this to the ladies because I I I'm like certain that 99.9 percent of this is coming from the ladies. This is a real question. Why is it that we need to see our characters crying? And I am not just talking about the men. I mean, it's like it's like a fucking sob fest in fandom. Sometimes it's like, why is everybody in you're tears? Working, you're just working out your 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 own internal angst. When I make a character cry, it's because somebody died. <laughs> it's it's because you, it can't, up to me. Like I said, you got you got to earn it. That's that's my my feeling about my own writing is if I'm going to have a character in tears, they got to earn it. You know, it it the story has got to and and odds are I'm just going to imply that they're crying. I'm not going to flat out fucking say it because I just. <sighs> One of the most difficult scenes I had to write um, was in um, the, fir- the the novella that I wrote for Ring of Fire, um, where Sebastian um, finally just loses his cool and and cries. Um, he'd maintained it through, through that whole um, experience with his grandfather, and you know, he, he, but the moment he set eyes on his daddy, he he just kind of had a meltdown and um and it was about uh it, it, that that seems very layered because it speaks to um sebastian's level of comfort with his father and the ability to seek comfort from his father um but also um that uh he's mirroring john in a lot of ways in that he um He's trying to push it down. He's trying to be like his dad, you know, in, in, internalize it. But then he couldn't maintain it, and so that was my goal in that scene was to to, to emphasize the fact that um, that Sebastian was uh, in a lot of ways emulating John, um, but also turning to John for comfort. Um, but it was very difficult to write, and, I'm, and I made myself cry. I hate making kids cry. Yeah, I yeah I don't. I don't write kids often, but whenever they cry, I wind up crying. It's terrible. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an easy crier or much of a crier. Um, I get when kids get upset. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, Oh, because I'm usually writing those emotions with them and it, it's tough. Um, somebody said something, and I don't want to call them out, but somebody said that because I asked the question and because I asked the question and they came back with an answer, I think that that's legit. Um, that, that people are shamed for writing and they want to normalize it. Um, I accept that. 
I, I, I accept that. I think, but I think that this is this is my opinion, and nobody has to agree with me that in life, that we adults have to learn to control their emotions to, to and and act appropriately in certain situations, and they don't just get to have crying tantrums at work. That kind of shit gets you fired, and it's not man or woman. or an anger management. Or anger management, if, if you're if you're an angry crier, um, should we be sh- should people be shamed for crying? If no, of course not. There shouldn't be any shame attached to tears. But people don't get to break down. People who break down start crying all the time at work. It is going to be a problem. It's that's, that's life. That's life. It's going to be a problem. And when I see people crying a lot and fix at work in, in their job function, and when they're supposed to be say law enfor- members of law enforcement. Um, it, it, it's not just it doesn't work. It, it doesn't work that way. That's not life. You can't just do that. And it's not a shame thing. It's like you don't have enough control over yourself to be in this job. It's just you have to some, – some, some things you just have to be able to control. Stay in control of your emotions. You have to react later. And if you're an, if some people, if they're an instant reactor, like they just react right then, they break down, they get paralyzed by whatever, they wouldn't want to be in law enforcement, okay? It wouldn't be a good job fit. They wouldn't want to be a 911 dispatcher. People who freeze up emotionally like that, and that's not a shameful thing. It's just reality. So it hits my disbelief, and it is jarring when I read people in law enforcement cry, have crying tantrums in front of their boss or their boss's boss. Um, so that's that's the whole. I think I think it's fine. I've had Tony crying stories. Like I said, I do. Feel, I don't have. I don't think there's any shame attached to that to crying to breaking down in tears. Um, I think a lot of the success of crying, it's not a shameful thing. It's just ridiculous. And that's my opinion because it's not the work work environment that I've ever been exposed to. And people who um, can't function at work under stressful situations without bursting into tears don't make it in the kinds of industries I worked in. That's just reality. So, um, that's been my life experience. That's the reality I've worked with. So when I encounter these things that are so contrary to reality and fiction, it is not about shaming men for crying or women for crying. It is that's absurd. It wouldn't work that way. So uh, I'm, I'm an angry crier, um, and when I'm angry crying, the last thing I want to do is be in public. Yes, I agree. But I have gotten so mad that. It would norm sometimes have pushed me to tears because I, I for me it's more of a frustration crying like I feel powerless and ineffectual to deal with something, and I get so frustrated that it I just start to get teary. But that well, reaction is frustrating because always... we can't kill the people who are fucking us up without going to right. jail, and that shit is frustrating. <laughs> but that reaction for me always comes for me always comes later because I compartmentalize my emotion when I'm at work. I have rarely ever lost control of my emotions on the job. And that's my experience. And because I feel like that that's appropriate, that you don't get to lose control at work. Um, you know, there are, of course, there are some extreme situations, right? There are extreme situations. I'm not talking about extreme situations. 
Um, if somebody walked into your office and slapped you at work, that's an, that's a, that's the thing that should never happen. So if it's a precipitating event that should never happen at work, the reactions are going to potentially be things that should never happen at work. But when there is, when things are just the normal course of frustration and work and da, 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 people have to compartmentalize. If they can't, they shouldn't be there. That's just the way my perspective on things is. So if people are inserting more um, emotions into their male characters because they're, you know, or female characters because they're, like you said, the normalizing thing, that's fine. And that's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where I read it and I go, that that is in no way mirrors real life. And why are we have all these, you know, people? You guys know the fandoms I read in? Why is Tony crying in the bullpen? I don't, why is he crying in Vance's office? I don't get it. And I don't want, actually, I wouldn't want to normalize that behavior because I just would, I would find it uncomfortable because, frankly, it is uncomfortable for everybody around you when crying happens <laughs> at work. I don't want to yeah. see that normalized. It's not a shame thing. It's like, what do we do now? I have a presentation that's due in, five, in 10 minutes and this person's crying. I don't know what to do. So. Well, but uh, so somebody mentioned a very extreme situation that happened at work that led to tears, but that's not being completely overloaded with work and like having to work like multiple shifts back to back. That's that's not normal. That's not a normal situation. So that is extraordinary circumstance leading to an out of the ordinary reaction. But if things are working where they're supposed to be, supposed to, we're supposed to be able to compartmentalize our emotions and keep. On, on the steady at work. That's what we expect from adults. So, Yeah, okay. And somebody gave, I gave an example of how a really extreme situation happened at work and they held it together and went out in their car and had a complete tantrum and then went back to the work and got back to work. And that's just, I think that's, that's the way we handle things. Maybe that is a shame thing, but I actually tend to think of it's more of that's what keeps things, keeps things, keeps things running at work. So um, I will say if anyone is offended by my comment about the crying, um, I, I am sorry if, if that really offended you because you feel like that I was trying to shame. Um, uh, but don't email us. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. If you feel like I was trying to shame you about tears, that was not it at all. Um, I was talking about from my life experience, what I'm seeing in fandom doesn't reflect what I would consider adult, adult, acceptable adult professional behavior on the job. It's not, it's not realistic to have a man with a gun have a complete fucking tantrum in the middle of his workplace and not face any kind of consequence. We're talking psychotherapy, suspension without pay, give me your gun, Denozo. <laughs> yeah, and it's not. It's that's not a. It wouldn't be shaming him in that if in a real circumstance like that, it wouldn't be about. I mean, might be some people would, might be some people would shame him, but the taking his gun away and getting him therapy would not be about shame. It would be about you are not emotionally stable enough to carry that gun, and that's the fucking truth. Because adults compartmentalize their their feelings. That's what we learn how to do. That's what part of being growing up and your brain fully developing is it allows you to learn to compartmentalize. And if you can't do it, you can't hold a gun. Go work somewhere where it doesn't matter as much. So, 
And even if, but don't wait tables, because <laughs> that shit is stressful. Yeah. That, that waiting tables could push anybody to tears. So if you're writing coffee shop, working in a coffee shop, Tony, and he bursts into tears because of obnoxious customers, I am with you all the way, folks. You go to town. I actually don't like coffee shop AU, but that is totally realistic because customers are assholes. <laughs> Super but assholes. It's just not the way things are with cops. So, um, so thank you, um, the person who, who responded about normalizing um, um, emotional reactions, um, because I think it was important that I uh, clarify what I was talking about, that I'm not talking about emotional reactions in general. I'm talking about, I read a lot of stuff with law enforcement officers, law enforcement in, in the you know, criminal mind, NCIS, those kinds of fandoms, and um, the rampant emotionalism in the bullpen at work or in their boss's office, that kind of stuff just doesn't fly in real life. It pushes the suspension of disbelief button really hard. I read a fic where Tony had a complete meltdown um, past uh, confidential, super secret information to several reporters and stormed out of NCIS. And if it was at all realistic, he would have been right inside a federal jail cell. And that had nothing to do with the tantrum and it had everything to do with passing unclassified information. He threw shit. I'm like, this dude's not five years old. <laughs> Five-year-olds so shit at people. And me sometimes at my husband. Yeah. But that's different. <laughs> Well, Barry White. But that boils down, I think, to characterization. So... It is yeah. characterization. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and them not having a good grasp on writing. And also, when I see that, I think to myself, this is a very inexperienced writer. Whether that's true or not, that's, that's what I assume automatically when I see somebody mangling a character to that level. I think to myself, this this person is really inexperienced as a writer. Or it could be it, it could be a little bit of a visceral thing. It's like you're looking at you've seen Tony take so much crap on NCIS, and you just want him to lash out at the people around him. But there are ways to do that where it doesn't, where you're not sacrificing Tony's characterization to do it. There are ways. And you gotta to be have careful when you have your characters use a. a abusive language with other characters. Even if it's a character you're bashing, you don't want to turn your character into a complete motherfucking asshole um, by treating other characters in a very derogatory um, way. You know, um, it is one thing to be angry and to burst out with something that you don't mean to say. I can't believe you're being so fucking stupid. How dare you? Because they're upset. But to be you know, in a situation where everything is normal, tones are normal, they're having a conversation, and you got your character constantly insulting other people at the table and they're not McKay, um, you got a problem. You are abandoning characterization for the sake of bashing. And I love bashing as much as anybody else. But a lot of times when we when we see Dinozo having a big fit, he is being verbally abusive to people around him. And it's not, it makes him look 
terrible. And it's best to keep your character on the high road. That's just my personal opinion. I agree. Because it, it really does just slaughter their characterization when they turn around and act worse than the behavior they're reacting to. And sometimes people, it's okay. Sometimes adults do lash back and say something they regret. But it being a one-off and them thinking, like, I shouldn't have said that and, and having that moment of, like, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have reacted that way um, – it's a very realistic thing, but when they're doing it to everybody and it seems like a planned assault, then you've just made your character abusive. It's a fine line when you have arguments happening, and so we're down to a, we're down to sixty seconds. Um, just be careful with your characterization, and that's all we're saying. Take the high road. Unless you have to kill yeah. them, and then you know, just <laughs> anyways. Say good night, Dilly. Good night, everyone. Thank you.